It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Hello, listeners. I'm thrilled to be bringing you this very special episode of a podcast of one's own for International Women's Day. My colleague, Dr. Rosie Campbell, the Director of the Global Institute for Women's Leadership at King's College London, has taken over the mic. She's in conversation with me and my dear friend and co-author, Dr. Ngozi Okonja-Iwala. I'm sure many of you would know Ngozi and I co-wrote a book entitled Women and Leadership, which was released last year. We first met when Ngozi was Finance Minister of Nigeria and I was Prime Minister of Australia. Ngozi's been very busy since heading up the Global Vaccine Alliance and she was very recently appointed as the first woman and first African to be the Director General of the World Trade Organisation, an incredible achievement. In this episode, we delve into some of the themes from our book and what we discovered through research. I hope you enjoy it. Thanks so much for listening and happy International Women's Day. I'm Julia Gillard and this is a podcast of one's own. It's so lovely to have you both here. Before I launch into the book, I wondered if you could both reflect on what are going to be the critical moments for women in this coming year. Ngozi, I wondered if you could start. Well, Rosie, thank you very much. Wow, that's a very important uh, question. This is the year of we're still struggling with the COVID pandemic. We are looking at how to recover from the public health emergency the world is in, as well as the economic recovery. So if you think along those lines... You think about critical moments for women, in my view, moments when we are certain or sure that um, what we have in terms of tools to deal with the pandemic, insufficient quantity, getting to those who need it in the front line. Why do I say that's critical for women? Because if you look at most countries, many of the frontline medical workers are women. On my continent, 75% of the nurses are women. And so a critical time is making sure they do get what they need. On the other hand, for the economy, you find that women have really been hit. So a critical time is when we can get out of lockdowns because some of them, you know, working from home in the rich countries are saying they are dropping out of the workforce because they can't handle having to school the children, do their work, take care of household chores, All of that combined is leading to a rapid dropout rate for women. In the poorer countries, you have women in the informal sector, and they don't make a living at all with these lockdowns. So a critical moment is when we can come out of it and people can pursue their normal livelihoods. Ngozi, you describe a really horrific pattern of of potential impacts on women that we really need to respond to. Julia, what would would your answer to that question be about the big moments for women in the coming year? 
I absolutely agree with how Ngozi has described it. And I think that lived experience of women then relates to what the world decides to do at some critical moments. So we've got the G7 coming up, uh, hosted by the United Kingdom. That, I think, will be taken up with a debate about how we best share the vaccine amongst all of us. And that's so important for women, as Ngozi describes, particularly the women at the front line of the health crisis, making sure they're protected. And then we will have during the year other moments where leaders come together. I'm thinking of the G20 to chart a course towards recovery. In the middle of all of that, we'll have generation equality, the UN's efforts to uplift women's roles and women's concerns as we rebuild beyond the pandemic. And from my personal point of view, in the middle of the year, there'll be a very important event too, which is the Global Partnership for Education, which I chair, is endeavouring to raise at least $5 billion US dollars to support its work over coming years, making sure that children in poorer countries get to have an education. We know from earlier epidemics that when schools close, the most at-risk kids may not make it back to school and they tend to be the girls. So special efforts need to be made to re-include girls in schooling. And then I guess for the whole planet, for all of us, the climate change meeting at the end of the year hosted by the UK really matters and a feminist perspective being taken to how the world deals with the climate emergency. Clearly, there's never been a more important time for women leaders and the role that women leaders can make in addressing this crisis. So it's also a really good moment to reflect on the lessons learned from the book that you wrote together. And I wondered if we could move on and if you might start, Julia, tell us what inspired you to write this book together. I think what inspired us in many ways is a shared passion for women and leadership because of the lives each of us has lived as a woman leader, me as Prime Minister of Australia and, of course, Ngozi in her various roles, but including particularly being the first woman to be Finance Minister of Nigeria. So we got to know each other at various international meetings where I was representing the Global Partnership for Education and Gozi was there, particularly in her role as chair of the Global Vaccine Alliance. And we started a lively conversation about our own experiences, but also our frustrations and even our sense of being a bit perplexed as we watched what was happening with women in the world. You know, we would come together and the president of Brazil, Dilma Rousseff, would just have been impeached and we'd be scratching our heads and asking each other, was that because she's a woman? Did gender play any role in that? And then, of course, Hillary Clinton lost in 2016 and we were asking ourselves, how much did gender play a role in that and we became increasingly determined to try and unpack these questions both through the research and through talking to women leaders about their own experiences and then offer some lessons for the future and so that's what led to the book. And Ngozi, from your perspective, what motivated you? Well, I think uh, Julia has really uh, captured it. It's a started with my own experience as a woman leader, the first and longest serving finance minister of uh, Nigeria, the first female and the longest serving. Also the first female foreign minister, especially as finance minister, it's a a tough job, but you do experience uh, several gendered moments, which I've written about in another book called Fighting Corruption is Dangerous. And I was looking at my experience over my life and through these roles, 
and wondering, do other women go through this? You know, as Julia said, we met each other and we, we began to discuss these issues. But in addition to that, there was another motivation. As you move along in your leadership role from one step to the other, you encounter a lot of women, young and old, who want advice, who want to know what it's like, who want to know if their experience is the same as others. And of course, you know, trying to put something that they could look at that would make them see that they're not alone, that other women leaders have the same experiences, that even when you're in a top leadership position, there can still be self-doubt. You can still encounter problems. And so this was a good reason for putting this out. And I always joke that it's a bit of self-defense because uh, if you're asked to mentor, a lot of uh, women ask for mentoring and you can only do so much, so many if you take it seriously. But if you capture all these experiences in a book, then you can just hand it to many more. <laughs> I love the fact that you've mentioned that important role of mentoring because research now shows more and more and more the important role that women leaders like yourselves play in terms of being role models for the next generation of women to get interested and involved in politics. And that takes me to one of the things that I really love about this book, which is the fact that you combine your massive brain power. You both consumed a lot of research in order to put this book together, but you combine that with the real stories of real lives of women leaders, which is a really unusual mix and really makes it a very compelling and informative read. And I just wondered when you were reading all of that research, did it shed any light on your lived experiences that you perhaps weren't aware of before? Of course, some of it served to illustrate our lived experiences, that we could make sense of our lived experiences, because the research pointed in that uh, direction, some of the things we were experiencing. And at other times, you know, we, we found lived experiences might somewhat differ from what the research is saying. So I think it's a combination of both. Based on the research, we formulated these hypotheses. I think that's what was really useful about the research. The first one, You Go Girl, based on looking at women leaders, including ourselves, what was the formative experience? What does research say about how you're brought up and the impact that has on you? So this hypothesis we, we found in talking to all the women and in our experience as well, that look, these women never were told they couldn't do anything. They were given, you know, very encouraging home lives and frameworks within which to work and to live. It wasn't that they were told they had to be leaders, but they were not told they couldn't be. And so that really spurred girls to reach out and feel they could do anything. So you, you look at that and other hypotheses we have based on what the research might say. And then we look at the lived experience. And sometimes you find, yes, it matches with what the lived experience. Sometimes you can't prove whether it matches or not. It's a, it's a bit of both. That was a very powerful part of the story. I thought that the environments that you, both of you and the women you spoke to were so supportive. Um, Julia, what, what were the lessons you learned from the research? For me, it did help put some of my personal experiences into context. I left being Prime Minister with a series of questions kind of whirling around in my brain about how much of what I went through was 
you know, just the nature of the political times in Australia during those years, how much was shaped by my decisions and the decisions the government took, and how much of it was simply because I was a woman. And it's almost an unanswerable set of questions because life doesn't just let you pull the gender thread out, you know, it all comes in a twisted up bundle. But it did, looking at the research, help me put into context some of the uh, harder parts of my experience because the research does show very clearly that we all have gender stereotypes whispering in the back of our brains and they tell us that if we see a woman who is leading and commanding, that she is probably not very likeable, that she's not doing the things we expect a woman to do. She's not being empathetic, nurturing, putting the team first. You know, she's showing ambition, those sorts of things that we end up thinking are offensive against our gender stereotypes and get us to conclude in the language of the book that she's a bit of a bitch. We actually do use that terminology in the book. And I did see that play out against me during the days of my leadership and looking at the research helped me understand those experiences and put them in a bit more context. And Rosie, while we are on the research, now is the appropriate moment for Ngozi and I to acknowledge the clear role the Global Institute for Women's Leadership played in assisting us with the research base that informed the book. You personally, and of course, one of our wonderful researchers, Laura, looked at the manuscript on more than one occasion, and it's a better book for your effort and support. So thank you for that. I have to say it was absolute pleasure. So thank you. So moving on to thinking about the conversations that you were having with the women leaders that you spoke to, did you identify any parallels with your own lives that perhaps you weren't expecting? I was very intrigued to talk to Theresa May about her experience as a woman who doesn't have children. I don't have children. And whilst our choices and our lives have been different. Theresa May doesn't have children because she was unable to. She would very much have liked to have had children. It was very fascinating for me to compare how we had been characterised because we didn't have children. This became a very big political issue for me. It was used to paint me as out of touch with family life as probably quite ruthless, a career girl, to use that sort of terminology, who turned her back on being a mother. And that was used to be a foundation stone for the sorts of issues I just talked about before. She can't be very nice or likeable if she deliberately chose not to be a mother in order to, you know, kind of ambitiously climb the career ladder that was all surrounding me. Theresa May experienced that a bit differently because she was unable to have children mostly. She says that that was treated quite sympathetically by colleagues and by the media and the electorate. But it was fascinating to me that at the entry point to what was the apex of her career when she ran to be Prime Minister, that the candidate against her, who was a woman, used her childless status against Theresa May and suggested that she had less of a stake in the future because she didn't have children. And so all of that discussion helped me once again to recognise that whilst my experiences are my own, they're not unique, that they're experienced by women around the world, including the women that we talk to. Ngozi. I think there are two parallels with the lives of women leaders I found in the book. 
Uh, the first one, perhaps with Jacinda Ardern, the second woman leader in the world to have a child while in office. And we were talking to her because one of the problems that uh, women struggle with is this work-life balance issue. How do you do it all? Take care of your family, be a strong professional, have even time for yourself. So we asked her about work-life balance and she said, there's nothing like balance. <laughs> I don't balance anything. I just make it work. And, you know, I, I could relate to, to that in a way because I have four children. It's the other side of the coin of what uh, Julia just said. You know, it's a bit of you're damned if you do and you're damned if you don't. If you don't have children, people think you're not empathetic. You don't know what people are going through. If you do have children as a woman, then it's, oh, how can she really do this job with all those children? And some may even think, why isn't she at home taking care of them instead of struggling here? So whatever women do, you always have some kind of adverse reaction sometimes to it. So I could relate to what she was saying. You make it work. You find a spouse who is supportive and who is willing to, to work with you. She has one. My husband was very supportive. And even though as a surgeon, he had a very busy career, but we both tried <laughs> together to make it work. Then the second example that I would talk about is an interesting one with Ellen Johnson Sirleaf. Ellen had, I think, three boys, or is it four? And she very much, she married at a young age and she very much wanted to go to university. I think she married after her secondary school education in Liberia. And there came a time when her husband went abroad to study and she had the opportunity to join her husband. But to do that, she had to leave her young children behind, especially the youngest, who wasn't, uh, you know, much older than, than a baby. And she felt some distinct, of course, conflicts and feelings about, yes, she wanted to do this, but how could she leave her children with the grandparents? And she struggled with this all her life. And it was interesting. She told us that even as late as when we were talking to her, she still wondered about that uh, conflicted feeling. So how does that, with me, my parents left me with my grandmother when I was a year old and went abroad to Germany. They got scholarships. So they went abroad to study. And my mother struggled with the same thing. So when she came back, and even before, she was always wondering whether she had done the right thing. And she shared with me her strong feelings of conflict on leaving me. So a little bit of that parallel. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Returning to Julia's example and Theresa May's experience, I remember that when this leadership election took place and the 
one of the other women contestants for the leadership of the Conservative Party, was drawing attention to her special qualifications as a mother, kind of juxtaposing herself against Theresa May, who was obviously childless, which put Theresa May in a position where she was forced to expose her childlessness when that had been a private matter. I subscribe to the view that women who don't support other women ought to go to a special place. And I know that you've got a whole chapter on that. And I wondered if you could tell me a bit more about it. Perhaps you might like to start and go through. <laughs> well, <laughs> you know, Madeleine Albright had that uh, saying that women who don't support women belong in a special hell. And, you know, there's this feeling that um, we wanted to test about, is it true that women don't really support women? When they get up there, do they pull away the ladder so other women can't climb it? And we actually found that in, in some cases, it wasn't that. It was that sometimes the places where they, they worked or they became leaders, people would tick off. You know, they've got their woman or they've got even their woman of color, however you want to phrase it. And they wouldn't look to promoting other women or putting them in leadership positions because they think they've ticked all the boxes. So it wasn't in some instances so much the women not supporting women, but that happening. But that being said, I think it's a mixed bag. Even with me, I can give my own example. There are times in my career where I can say that women were fantastic, supportive. And even now, with uh, the, going for the director general of the WTO, there are some women who made the critical difference in helping me to make this happen. Then you have an example of others who didn't whom I even mentored and helped, who turned around, you know, and were the opposite. I don't think one can draw any conclusion that women don't support women or they do. I think it's a mixed picture. I agree with Ngozi. It's a mixed picture. And looking at my own life experiences, I too can say that I've had fantastic support from women, some incredible colleagues, women colleagues who uh, were there for me when the times were at their absolute toughest but that doesn't mean that all of this is easy. And we talk in the book about what we call the politics of scarcity. So because women have been coming from the outside into what historically have been male institutions, whether that's parliaments or companies or, or the news media, what have you, women have tended to get the smallest slice. So they're you know, the one woman on the board of directors or the one woman in the government's cabinet, or maybe there are two women, but there aren't many slots for women. And so it can be easy for women to get into their head that if I want to be in that room, if I want to get that promotion, then my best way of doing that is to take the place of one of the current women who's there rather than looking at the whole structure and saying to ourselves, look, let's not pit women against women. Let's actually bust this open so that half the spots are there for women. So we do ask women to think about this politics of scarcity and to think about the times that we kind of artificially get pitted against each other and into a competition. Now, that doesn't mean to say that all competition between women is bad. In my own nation in Australia, we relatively recently had an election in the state of Queensland where a 
female premier, so the governor equivalent in US terms, female premier contended against a female leader of the opposition in the election. One of them was going to win, one of them was going to lose. That's democracy. And there's nothing wrong about that. You know, two men have gone head to head for those sorts of positions over the ages. So there's nothing wrong with two women going head to head for them. But even in that context, what you have to resist is that it gets put in a gender frame. You know, it's described as a cat fight because there's two women going against each other or let's analyse their wardrobe. Do they dress differently or do they dress the same? And unfortunately, all of that did happen during the Queensland election campaign. So I guess where I land is... Yes, I think there is a special place in hell for women who don't support women. None of us want to go there. And so we need to be as thoughtful as possible about when the competition is inherent and necessary, like in democratic elections, but when it's artificial and we're just getting set up as women and we can do better than that. I think it would be remiss, you know, because the competition I just came out of, the final for the uh, DG of the World Trade Organization, it was two women finalists, so to speak. This business, I think we ended up, maybe we wouldn't call it a catfight, but uh, there was certainly, I see an attempt maybe to pit one against the other in a way, but, uh, you know, luckily, it didn't degenerate too much uh, with a lot of strategic, what I call strategic patience. <laughs> I waited quite a while <laughs> to see if the other person would step down because I had the biggest support from the members. And, and she did. And so I don't uh, thank God it didn't kind of degenerate into that mudslinging. But Julia is absolutely right. You know, sometimes women are pitted against each other and we want women to really think together about how do we bake a bigger cake rather than fighting for the small slice of a cake that we have. And we certainly need that bigger cake right now. I'd like to take you back to some of the stories that you shared in the book. And I wondered, um, was there anything particular that surprised you? There were lots of things that surprised me, but of the things that made a big impact on me, One of the stories that we were told was by Michelle Bachelet, who was the first woman to date only president to lead Chile. And she told us a story about she grew up the daughter of a general. So she grew up in the elite of her society. But of course, fascism came in the form of the Pinochet regime and her father was imprisoned. He was tortured until he died. She and her mother were both imprisoned and tortured and they needed to flee to safety. And the first country they fled to was actually Australia to find peace and security. All those years later, when her country came back to democracy, she's serving as a minister in the government and she's appointed as Minister for Defence. And people have asked her, what did you feel in that moment? Because it's a wonderful full circle in her life. Her father, a military general who dies in such tragic circumstances, and there she is as a woman being sworn in as Minister for Defence. And she said to us that what she was really thinking in that moment was, I can't speak too softly. No one's going to take me seriously if I speak too softly. And it made a powerful impression on me because we talked to each of our women about how they self-limit behaviours. And so they're conscious of being on this tightrope. And it just through Michelle's story came home to me how much we end up being robbed 
of as women. Yeah, maybe I'll I'll talk about Christine Lagarde and her glass cliff moment because uh, I was also surprised to see that um, women experience this glass cliff. I've had several moments like that in my career. She was asked at a critical moment when the law firm in which she was a partner was having so much trouble uh, that to become to lead it and to clean it up and and restore the law firm to a good functioning situation. And she took the risk to take that on. And she said she asked herself, herself afterwards whether she was in her right mind in a way. That was a very risky thing. She didn't need to do it. She was already doing well as a partner in the Paris office. But she took it on because uh, we found that sometimes when it's only when situations get really bad that women are asked to lead because the men, you know, walk away. They have they may have other options, but women may feel, you know, this is the only chance I have to lead and they take it. And it's that, you know, considered risk that can turn into a glass cliff where you may fall off or you may succeed. And so having lived through two or three examples of that in my career where I took on something, I could really, really relate to that. Actually, I'm facing another glass cliff moment right now because I'm going into an organization, the WTO, which I think is terribly important uh, for the world, which is why I wanted to to lead it so that it could help all countries lift all boats, improve living standards, or particularly the poorer countries. But it has so many challenges at the moment, so much lack of trust among members. So you wonder, am I going to be able to to make a difference to really make this work? I hope so, but it's certainly a glass cliff moment like Christine's. Ngozi, no one is in any doubt that you will be soaring rather than falling from that (laughs) glass cliff. And I'm so glad that you've mentioned it because actually one of the original authors of the first study to identify the glass cliff is Michelle Ryan, who is joining the Global Institute for Women's Leadership to direct the ANU sister office of the Global Institute. So um, thank you so much for referencing that research. And we're so glad you've taken this glass cliff on of your own. Thank you, Rosie. Moving to my related question is we've talked about what's, what, what did you find out that surprised you from the stories that we shared with you? There were some incredibly moving stories in, in the book. Could you share an example that really moved you? It was interesting to me to find that all the women leaders, in one way or the other, struggled with how they look, how they dress, in the sense that they felt they were being judged on that. You know, you have male leaders, they have a uniform, as Julia and I are fond of saying, they wear their suit and their tie. Nobody really comments or criticizes them. Nobody even criticizes them for their weight and other things. But the women leaders... Each and every one of them felt that that was an aspect of their leadership that uh, was very gendered. You know, so how they looked, what they wore, that really became an issue where they had to find maybe sometimes a standard look to wear the same kind of outfit all the time so that people would look beyond that to the substance of what they were trying to say as leaders. And I relate very much to that because uh, I also found I should develop a look so that people know this is the way I'm going to look. It might be in different colors, but it's the same look. So they already know and they focus on what I'm saying. So you see my look, 
You know, I don't have to worry about my hair because I very I come from a country where we tie our hair when we wear normal traditional outfit. And so people now tie this style and it's even become a thing. <laughs> if you if you see on the internet when I became DGWTO, there was a competition among women, African women, to see who could tie their hair and girls like mine. So that was my way of dealing with it, having a look. And it surprised me and moved me that all these women leaders, wonderful women, were experiencing the same thing. I have to say that you've moved me to think there are little girls around the world thinking, this is the way I need to tie my hair to be Director General of the WTO. That's just absolutely wonderful. I saw that publicity about Ngozi's headscarf and how she ties it and sort of tie your uh, headscarf like Ngozi. I thought it was wonderful too. And having watched her do it, as I have, Ngozi gets it done in about, oh, I would say 20 seconds. And I think if I was going to try and imitate it, I would still be there 12 hours later and I wouldn't have got it right. So she is, she is very, very expert in it. For me, you know, a question when we started this book that the two of us both had in our heads is how much experience will be shared by women across cultures and contexts and how much will be different? And what we actually found was much more was shared than you would imagine, that, you know, even though women come from very different places, very different life stories, there were experiences in common simply because they were women. Having said that, Culture, context, background did make a difference. And what impressed me in an emotional sense doing the book was just how much some women have to live through in their journey of leadership. And I'm thinking about women like Ellen Sirley, who at one point was given a sentence of imprisonment that was so long and the jail was known to be such a hellhole that everybody thought she was unlikely to survive it if she served the full sentence or many years of the sentence. Joyce Bander, President of Malawi, having to show physical courage as well as courage in every other way because she was genuinely concerned about assassination attempts. These kinds of things that women have to live through because their sense of purpose is so strong uh, to make a difference to their nation, their world, that really stays with me. I was wondering if you could cast your minds back and you had this book in your satchel when you were young, young, young girls, young women, what would you do differently with the knowledge you've been armed with from this book? I think if I had this book, perhaps I would not fret so much about some of the issues because part of the power of this book is knowing that other women are going through this, that you're not unique. Even simple things like as a young woman starting my career, you would uh, go to a meeting mostly men, and you make a comment and nothing would happen. No one would say anything. Then three minutes later, a man makes the same comment and people say, brilliant, well done, you know? And, you know, this happened to me a few times. I mean, if I had had this book, I would know this happens to so many women. And I found out it wasn't just me. Of course, I devised a methodology to get around it. So I always became the first to raise my hand and make my comment because I found if if you're a woman and you talk first, they'll listen. But if you come in somewhere in the middle, you know, it will be ignored. So, so some of the lessons 
that we learned. If I'd been a young woman and known, known that, I think it would have given me more comfort. I probably would not have done many things differently, but I would not have fretted over something so much or worried so much. And I want to add one little thing. You know, we are talking for all the gendered experiences we've had. Women of color feel it even more. And in the book, we say that, um, you know, there's a pecking order, you know, white males, then black males, white females, and then women of color at the bottom. You know, so we for this book, I hope that women of color will also read it. They'll see some of themselves in every lesson. But they'll also know that if you're a woman of color, you've got people like Ellen Johnson, Sally, Joyce Banda, you've got myself, you can get through it. Because sometimes you suffer not just the sexism or gendered behavior, but also racism. And I can tell you, I want to illustrate it with one recent story, and then I'll, I'll stop. Just now, when I became WTODG, three newspapers in Switzerland had a headline, 66-year-old grandmother to run the WTO. I didn't even know about it. When I found out was that there was a war raging on the internet, and it's going on right now, people took them to task, and some were men from all over the world, saying that somebody actually said when the UN Secretary General got the job, or when other men in leading positions, did you say, you know, 71-year-old grandfather or 50-year-old uh, father? So people were fighting this one. I didn't even know it. And it's raging. Some African women in the UN have written a protest letter about it. Now in Switzerland, the group of women who are protesting against it, and it's raging as we speak, because people found that so sexist and so gendered and racist. At first, I was ready to really say, forget the headline, you will have some of that, because Julian knows what I say, that my father told me people are racist or they're sexist. It's their problem, not yours. And that's how I've lived my life. So I wasn't really reacting. But when the paper was sent to me, and one of them had a, a cartoon, which is, you know, obviously, it's racist and sexist. I have to say that. Then I said, well, this is a little bit out of bounds. I haven't done anything about it. That's the good news. The good news I want to give you is that what we say in this book is working. People are fighting the battle. I haven't said one word. So there is comfort. The world is changing. You know, Julia says all the time we should call this out. Men should call it out. And some men are calling it out. So we are living our book. <laughs> These are the things that Julia and I were talking about in the book. So it's so interesting to me, you know, that we are living it right now. And I don't have to fight the battle. That's the big thing. Well, you are Julie. actually fighting the battle. I have two mixed race daughters and you are literally fighting the battle for them so that they don't hopefully have to face these kind of barriers in 20, 30 years time. So we have got a lot to be grateful to you for. Julia, what's your response to this question? I wasn't aware of that happening in Gozi. That is just, you just want to put your head in your hands, don't you? That that can still be happening now. But I'm so glad that there's people mobilising around it and pushing back. For me, to have something that helped you know which bits of it were because you were a woman, I think is comforting. And it's also a forewarning. We say in the book that we want young women who are on their leadership journeys 
to read the book, forewarn this book, um, instead of feeling blindsided, flattened, unsure not what to do next when a gendered moment comes. One, you'll recognise it. You'll recognise it as a common experience for women. You won't take it to heart as something uniquely about you. And hopefully you will have thought in advance about the strategies you will use in that moment. And I would have found uh, that kind of advice incredibly useful earlier on in my career. Thank you both so much, both for being the role models and fighting this fight over such a sustained period with so much energy Um, but also for providing this book that will be a resource for so many young women so they don't have to, at least they don't have to think they're doing it alone. A Podcast of One's Own is a production of the Global Institute for Women's Leadership at King's College London. The Institute works towards a world in which women of all backgrounds have fair and equal access to leadership. If you liked what you've been listening to, please tell your friends. We'd love it if you could also rate and review us with your preferred podcast provider to ensure more people can find out about us. If you have feedback or ideas of who you'd like to hear on the show, please email us at giwl at kcl.ac.uk. This podcast has been produced by Connie Blafari and edited by Nick Hilton. To stay up to date with the work of the Global Institute for Women's Leadership, visit our website at giwl.kcl.ac.uk and sign up to our updates. Thanks for listening and join us next time.